Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today's episode is brought to you by Viking Shield, a company that specializes in bringing you high-quality Viking Age replicas and gifts since 2000. Be sure to check them out at viking-shield.com today and save 5% off your order when entering the code VIKING18 in your shopping cart. Do be sure to write me a review on iTunes and the like, as the more reviews the show gets, the easier it is for people to find, and I would love to hear your feedback. You can always feel free to contact me. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com, and I would be delighted to hear from you. I'm very excited for today's show, and I know I say I'm excited to have on every guest that I've had on the show, but today is uh, really an exception because I'm very excited to have on uh, Luke DeWolf and Dan Larrabee, the two hosts of the Northern Myths podcast. And of course, I've talked about their show on my show before, so a lot of you probably are familiar with their work, but uh, the Northern Myths podcast is an archetypal look at some of the Northern Myths of Europe. Uh, they've uh, dove deep into the Kalevala, the uh, national epic poem and myth of, of Finland and uh, the Havamal. And today they'll be talking to us about the uh, Voluspa, of course, the poem that in Norse myth and the Poetic Edda that sort of gets into the creation of the world as, as well as Ragnarok, the, the end times. So uh, Luke and Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So uh, I guess you know, before we get into the Poetic Edda and uh, the Voluspa, um, I kind of gave you guys an introduction, but I'd love it if you could just sort of tell us about uh, Northern Myths. Um, you know, either one of you can can chime into that and just tell us about Northern Myths, what you guys are up to over there and uh, what, what the Northern Myths podcast is all about. Yeah, you sort of hit it on the head here. Uh, our, the way we describe it is an archetypal exploration of the myths and legends of Northern Europe. So, yep, that was exactly right. And we're doing a lot of deep exploration into these stories, looking to find the meaning in these stories that we can apply to our daily lives. And that's been a really exciting process. We've been really enjoying what we've been doing on the show. Currently, we're maybe a little under a third of the way through the Poetic Edda, which I'm sure many of you know is the, uh, the, the primary source of Norse mythology that we have available to us. And we've also just started into the Kalevala. So that's also been exciting. Dan, do you have any anything to add on that? Uh, just that when we're looking at these myths, we're trying to find the, I'd say the, the timeless aspects, the things that held meaning for the people that were hearing these stories, you know, way back in the day, and then hearing them again, like, what is it about them that that rings truth sort of throughout the ages for human beings? So yeah, I guess for me, that's sort of the the idea behind it. And we, we have found that the archetypes uh, that uh, I guess Jung has worked with and like Joseph Campbell, all those uh, people, they're, sort of, they're one of the keys to understanding these stories on a sort of like human condition level. Mm, yeah, for sure. No, I love that. I think that's great. And uh, one of the things that I really love is um, – you know, in sort of this this resurgence of Norse myth and, and all of these sort of northern myths coming up in in pop culture and um, just they're becoming more and more um, visible in our society today. Uh, just like with the work you guys are doing and what I'm trying to do with the history of Vikings and um, you know just everything like that is one thing that I love about that and what I, and this is why I love you guys are 
uh, this is why I love that you guys are like looking at it from an archetypal perspective is because, you know, for years, um, sort of the intellectual concepts of ancient Greece and ancient Rome have really sort of dominated pop culture and dominated our society and certainly our education systems, especially higher education in many ways, you know, just sort of like uh, the the writings of Plato and Epicureanism and Stoicism and all these different intellectual concepts have really been, um, you know, grasped onto, which is, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but those are all sort of... Um, the um, a more of a Mediterranean culture, when in reality, often overlooked are the um, epic myths and poems and honestly, wisdom that we can find in, in Northern European literature as well. So I just think that's great that you guys are doing that. Yeah, you know, we've we've definitely talked amongst ourselves about how Western civilization is really the focus of a lot of great thinkers these days. But we're going for the Northern perspective on that. And that's really a, a broad term, kind of a catch-all term, because we want to give, give ourselves the flexibility to look into as many different uh, cultures and traditions as possible, because you know we, we certainly have a background in kind of Norse mythology. It's been a, a longstanding interest for us, but we want to be able to explore, I mean, first of all, the Finnic traditions, Slavic, Baltic, Celtic, there's tons there. And, and I mean, we don't want to limit ourselves to just that one part of the world either, but it's certainly a starting point, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dan, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, well, I was thinking that you're, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of, uh, I'd say, more Mediterranean or Eastern myths and legends and philosophy I, I know going through school you know, reading Plato's Republic was sort of mandatory, like through high school and then in university and all that kind of stuff. And the, um, but there's never really, there's no class where I read the the Havamal or, you know, a Norse myth. The, the closest you'd come would be like, you know, on your way home from school, stopping off at the comic book shop and, and getting Thor or something like that. And uh, I wondered if, I've thought a lot about it and I wondered if, you know, if there was some exoticism where it's like, ooh, it's Greek mythology. It's a little bit different from the stories that we know or you know, sort of the idea that it, it's right in our backyard, right? These uh, northern myths and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do every day that we take for granted, I would say, in, in the Western world and North America that that we have the, the, the uh, northern myths that underlying it so like you know all of our stuff that we do at christmas and new years and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of like in our own backyard and we don't i don't think we really look at it but then when we see like you know greek mythology or hindu mythology i know is uh quite big in north america now and, and europe it's it's a little bit exotic it's something that's you know not really what we're used to so we're kind of drawn to it uh but I, I do think it's it's good to actually take a look at what's in your own backyard and sort of get an idea for why things are the way they are in your like in your home and why why we have certain beliefs that you know if you trace it back far enough it's like oh you know we got it from the Vikings like you know in uh, in Canada where we are our parliamentary system is like on a direct line from the thing that you know the. Uh, the Norse would have used to figure out political issues and figure out whether someone was, uh, you know, guilty or innocent of a crime, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just funny that when you sort of turn that that eye onto yourself and 
look at look at the things that you take for granted sort of from a traditional sense like like why do we do these things well you you can find a lot of that in, in these northern myths no that's really really well said i i love that and uh, that's fascinating that uh, the canadian parliamentary system is really uh can really trace its its roots in its structure to the the all thing um the parliamentary system uh, that the vikings established certainly in iceland uh that's just great no i absolutely love that and i know for me like uh just discovering norse myth for the first time because i always wasn't super familiar with norse myth especially uh actually going to a classical school where uh even like you said dan uh you know <laughs> reading plato's republic and and um Certainly, the histories of Rome, Seneca, and all that was just mandatory. Um, which it, it's it's a great read. Those are all really interesting books. I just think that there's so much more that is just neglected in, in our society. But uh, uh, certainly, we'll be doing it justice today in today's show when we dive into the poetic Edda. And I know a lot of listeners are already familiar with the poetic Edda. Uh, there's Various translations. There's kind of two main translations, uh, if you will. There's Caroline Larrington of Oxford University's uh, translation, who we've had on the show, as you know, before. And actually, we'll be bringing her back on the show in a few weeks. So that's very exciting. And there's also Dr. Jackson Crawford of uh, Colorado, Colorado Boulder, um, his translation as well. But I, I tend to prefer uh, Crawford's translation. And I know you guys use that on your show, Luke and Dan. It's just kind of more contemporary. Uh, in contemporary English. So I love that. But, you know, the Voluspa, that's one of the poems in the Poetic Edda. There's many different poems in the Poetic Edda, but could you sort of give us an introduction uh, to, to the Voluspa? I know many listeners, I'm sure, are very familiar with it, but perhaps for those of us who aren't as familiar with it, what is the Voluspa all about? What is um, What are the contents of this poem? Well, I can uh, I can feel that one. So it's... It basically encapsulates, I would say, the creation, the lifespan, and the destruction of, I guess, the Norse mythology. But in a, it's really important to know it's it's a, a cycle. So it goes through one cycle of, you know, the creation, lifespan, and destruction, and then it like the very last stanza lets you know that the cycle is going to start again. So. It just kind of en- encompasses the the worldview of, I guess, Norse mythology and, and the people living at the time. This is if you read this, you can have sort of an idea of what how how they viewed the world, what they believed, and what they believed was going to happen in the future. Yeah, there's this really this concept of like, um, would you call it like the Norse mythic cycle? Because Ragnarok, the twi- well, first of all, the world's created. You know, the the massive ash tree, Yggdrasil. In which all of the the nine realms that all of the that all beings live in are encompassed in this great ash, and that's sort of the mythic landscape or the cosmos of Norse mythology, and and that's created. Um, and then you know the the various myths occur, the death of Baldur, all of these these great myths kind of happen in between that cycle, and then at the end it's Ragnarok, the the twilight of the gods. But then, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the the great ash that that was destroyed then reborn is is am i getting that right in terms of the mythic cycle well yeah that's that's theoretically correct uh they, i don't believe they make mention in the voluspa specifically of 
of uh, the world tree being reborn, but it's it's certainly implied the world as a whole is reborn and the gods go back to the old places where they had their golden age. That's Edaval Plain. They lived in their golden age for really an indeterminate amount of time. And that was the best time in the whole world. And they return to that and they pick up the old traditions and cultures and they relearn the wisdom and it all continues. And you know, it's, it's the most hopeful thing in the world because really it, it just says that no matter how bad things get, it's going to be born anew and it's going to return to potential. That's, that's what the golden age really means to me is that it's that idyllic time that is really ideal where anything can kind of come from that. Everyone's living in this, this peace, this harmony and everyone's living just this great life. And in a lot of ways, that's what ritual and religion is actually trying to do. It's trying to recreate this idea, the idea of the golden age, the idea of the holy and the sacred in modern life in just a sliver of modern life. And that's what's going to come back after Ragnarok. It's incredibly So hopeful. what do you think, reading the Voluspa, um, and, and I suppose reading the Poetic Edda in general, is there any sort of like bits of wisdom that, that you guys would say are in there or just things that you've read and you're like, oh my God, like that is incredible. Like, like just look at, look at this piece of poetry. Are there any moments like that that you guys come upon when you're reading these poems? I would say all the time. I think uh, even during, so what we'll do is we'll read the poems by ourselves and make notes. And then we don't really talk about it too much before we go to record so we can have those, you know, mind blowing moments where we just sort of sit back and realize, oh my goodness, this is the meaning of, of the story, or at least one of these significant meanings. And then you can sort of, I know for myself, I can actually feel something shift in my thinking and, and how I see the world when, you know, when Luke says something that I hadn't considered, but it just fits so perfectly into not only a story, but what I understand of the archetypes and then just what I know of my own life and life in general. So absolutely, there are moments that just blow yeah, me away. No, that's, that's incredible. Luke, what would you say? Uh, do you say that you would experience that as well? I would agree. And, and, you know, Dan hit it on the head. I mean, we, we both had those moments and, it, and it, it's a regular thing, right? Where we just, we come at it from different perspectives sometimes. And, and I mean, I, I don't really understand exactly why we, why we do that. We, we read a lot of the same things, but it's, it's really good that we, we hit all this stuff from, from so many different perspectives. It could be just, you know, whatever, whatever I'm reading that week, that's sort of the examples that I'll, I'll bring in personally. And, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, there's tons that we, can pull out from the Voluspa that are are just fantastic and I mean it's uh it's it's a great poem because well in a lot of ways it it hits on a lot of these ideas in a a superficial way because many of these stories would have been known to the people listening to them so they cover them very superficially but we can expand on that and go into what the stories actually would have meant based on, you know, the one or two stanzas that they refer to something on, right? But even in those one to two stanzas, that's the the division of the of the poetic edit in general is into stanzas. It's uh there's just so much there and every word is put there with a purpose. You know, we we operate under that assumption anyway because it's uh 
you, you know, they, they were very, very careful to record, first of all, only what was meaningful, but also, you, you know, not to leave too much kind of fluff in there. They were very, very uh, precise with their um, their poetry and all that. And, and, and certainly that's not always the case, but the Voluspa is, is special. It's, it's very much kind of a self-contained whole mythology almost. And so it's, that's what makes it one of the, the most interesting poems that we've ever yeah, covered absolutely. for sure. And I think the creation of the world just sort of, and in a minute, I would love, I've talked about the creation of you know the the universe and Norse myth on my show before, but I'd love to hear how you guys sort of go about it. So Luke or Dan, in a few moments here, if you'd like to just sort of, or I'll tell you what, why don't one of you give us a, a sort of like synopsis to the creation of the world, then the other one can tell about Ragnarok. But, you know, it's just the creation myth in Norse mythology is, is such a fascinating tale and I was reading Caroline Larrington's book, which I highly recommend to all of you listening. It's just The Norse Myths, uh, A Guide to the Gods and Heroes. And just when you look at how the world and the universe is created in Norse mythology compared to other religions, it's, it's really fascinating because, you know, in Christianity, uh, the world and the universe is kind of breathed into existence because of the, the logos or, or the word. Um, you know, in, in the Christian, like Jewish tradition, but then, um, the world is sort of like, I'm trying to look for the right word, but almost like born into existence out of a like female character as well. And there's this really this, you know, undertones of fertility and everything else. But in Norse myth, you know, these creator gods really need resourcefulness in, in planning when creating a world. So just how they go about doing that and the the nature of just oh it's just so fascinating um these these Norse myths and I could go on and on but you know Luke if you would why don't you start us off um how was the world how does how does the world come into fruition in in the Voluspa okay so at the beginning there was essentially nothingness the word for that is ginunga gap and we the, the word gap at the end is really the same as our current meaning of gap. It's like emptiness, and out of that was essentially this uh, this sort of ice type situation, which is really a a byword throughout Norse mythology in general for kind of this primordial pre cosmogonic chaos. That's one of my my favorite concepts is pre cosmogonic chaos. It really means the chaos that has the potential for everything and into this state ended up coming a few primordial beings. I, I won't I won't go into too much of the specifics on that just to to get through the, the story a little bit, but you have these primordial beings which are are rich with symbolism. One is Alzumla, the original cow. And Alzumla was an a, an interesting figure for me, uh, mostly because, you know, cow symbolism is, is really rich in, in areas of the world, especially, uh, in Hindu mythology, they ended up venerating cows, right? And that, that was really, uh, a, a whole big part of their culture. And, and if you go back far enough, the Norse and the Indian people, the, the modern day people of India, of Northern India, mostly shared a common ancestor very, very far back, but you can kind of see echoes of their uh, traditions within one another. So, th- so there's this this cow, which to me is really this symbol of fertility, like you were saying, and a symbol of kind of this this potential and, and this potential for growth. And then on the other side of it is Umir, whose name means primal scream. 
and Umir is like this original giant and he's he's usually described as a as a male character i believe in in one instance in uh, another poem vathrudnismo but he's he is this kind of original giant and he's he's born out of chaos and the implication there in general is that uh he, he is sort of a, a a negative character in in some sense but also positive in the sense that there is this potential out of Umir and really what we have in the Voluspa sort of shorthands this entire cycle but uh, Odin with two other characters uh, Odin, Honir and Loder that's their names they kill Umir and make the world out of his body. And what's so interesting about that is that it parallels a number of other cultures, but the one in particular that uh, that I like as an example is the Mesopotamian culture and their creation story of the Enuma Elish. They have a god called Marduk, who is sort of this heroic figure. He, he really becomes the, the king god because he's able to subdue Tiamat, a really similar character, she's female, which is sort of symbolically more consistent with the ideas of of order and chaos, how they've been portrayed symbolically traditionally. Order is portrayed as masculine and chaos is portrayed as feminine, but the uh, Marduk is able to subdue Tiamat and make order out of the world, sorry, make the world out of her, make order out of chaos. That's that's really the whole the whole thing. And so this in Norse mythology, in the Voluspa, it mirrors that. What Odin does, what Odin and his two you could call them brothers, but it's often been theorized that they might be hypostases of Odin. It's it's uh fuzzy. I don't believe we have a direct answer on that, but what they do is the same thing. They create order out of this chaos, out of this symbol of chaos, which is Umir. So between between all that, we get a very symbolic picture of the world being put into order intentionally by these gods who end up being at the top of the pantheon. Odin is is kind of the head god. And uh you know that's that's one reason why he's the head god is because he creates he puts the world into order out of chaos that's the the main creation story in the voluspa anyway but there's other phases to it as well but brilliant way of putting it and one thing that you said that really kind of struck me and just so that i'm getting it right you said something like um did you say that was it men were perceived as chaos and sort of females were perceived as order or was it the other way around in certain mythologies it is the other way around traditionally, and this is purely on a symbolic level. It's not to say that women are chaotic and men are orderly, because there are vastly different personalities and this is not going to play out the same. But the reason, the way I understand it, that chaos is considered feminine is that women have in their own bodies the capability of creating life. Chaos is not a negative thing. Chaos is the potential, the infinite potential for anything to happen. It can be destruction, but it's also creation. And creation is the ultimate, the ultimate thing, the ultimate mystery. And so that's why that is symbolically 
feminine the way I understand it. And the counterpart to that is order and our natural kind of counterpart to the feminine is the masculine. That's my best explanation for that. So in a way, when you have a man and a woman, you're kind of uniting order and chaos, aren't you? Or are you more of restoring order to the chaos, would you say? Yeah, symbolically, that's that's uh, I believe that's known as the heros gamos. The uh, I, I don't uh, I don't remember off the top of my head the direct translation for that, but that's like the the natural union. And and yes, symbolically, that's supposed to be order and chaos. Certainly, a really interesting way of of looking at it, and it is kind of yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but I've never really thought about it that way. But you know that that's uh, Luke. That was a brilliant way of putting the creation of the world and. And Dan, I'd love for you to tell us about the end times, the uh, Ragnarok, the uh, some would say the twilight of the gods, um, when you know there's presumably these these epic battles, and that's kind of Ragnarok is signaling the the end of the Norse mythic cycle. So, what is Ragnarok? Sure. Uh, before I, I talk about Ragnarok, I'll just mention one thing. The um, when, when you and Luke were talking about uh, chaos and order coming together. Uh, in men and women, I, I think uh, it had been mentioned that you know, is it order putting or yeah, is it men sort of putting order to chaos? But I, I think the right way of looking at it is chaos and order kind of living together side by side in kind of in harmony because you absolutely need both to be productive and successful and everything like that, uh, which actually leads nicely into Ragnarok because once you get once that falls out of harmony, then things start falling apart and you have to sort of figure out how to put things back together. Um, so starting, I'll start with the, the story of Ragnarok where, well, I'll start with Baldur. Baldur is the most beautiful god, he, the son of Odin and Frigg. Uh, everyone loves him. He's strong. He's handsome. He's courageous. He's skilled in battle. Like, if there's anything that can be good in life, he is the best at it. And uh, so Frigg loves her son so much, as mothers do. She goes around uh, the world asking everything to, uh, to make a vow that they won't harm her son, Baldur. And she, gets, she asks absolutely everything except for mistletoe. And when... So she... And I'll say that this is kind of a, a play on the idea of uh, willful blindness that you see in other mythologies where it's usually the old king is willfully blind to the, the, the encroaching chaos on the order and how things are uh, falling out of harmony. And he's kind of willfully blind to it. So he, he ultimately succumbs to it. Well, in this case, it's uh, the mother, which, which is interesting. I'm not actually sure what to make of that, but, uh, but it, it is what it is in this story. So what ends up happening is Balder becomes invulnerable because everything has agreed not to harm him. And as boys are wont to do, he gets his brothers and friends together and they decide to uh, throw things at him to see if he's actually invulnerable. So they're throwing swords and spears and shooting with arrows and, you know, bashing him with rocks and nothing's harming him. And then it's uh, Hode's turn and Hode is blind. At least in in some stories, in other stories, he's he's kind of a, a competitor a competitor of Baldur's of you know who's the the better hero and, and warrior. Um, but I think the more famous story is 
is hold is blind and uh, Loki gives him a dart made out of mistletoe and uh, tricks Hode into throwing it at uh, Balder and it kills Balder and everything kind of falls apart from there because they realize it's Loki and uh, a lot of internal strife and then uh, they kind of decide to go to to go to war with each other and and Loki is with the, the fire giants and uh. The fire giants are interesting. So it was mentioned earlier by Luke that all of these stories are kind of shorthand. So there isn't the narrative structure isn't, let's say, as coherent as one might like. But basically what what ends up happening is that Loki is uh, leading an army of of giants and beastly things uh, into Asgard to sort of wreck everything and, and bring an end to the gods. And and so you have so that's what you have on one side on the other side you've got odin who has basically been spending his life uh gathering wisdom in order to avoid ragnarok the twilight or the doom of the gods and there's sort of a there's controversy isn't the right word but it's unknown sort of whether it's meant to be the the twilight of the gods meaning the, the end and if that's sort of a more christian idea or if it was the doom of the gods and the idea of like their destiny and that this was always going to happen and that you absolutely need it for uh, for rebirth and regrowth and that kind of thing. So you have the you have the the battle and there's a, a few figures that are very important in this battle. So there's Odin and uh, Fenrir, and Fenrir's a, a giant wolf who, when he opens his mouth, his lower jaws uh, dredge up the land and his upper jaws tear out the sky. So, like, apocalyptic is the only word I can think of, just completely world-ending wolf. And Odin uh, rides into battle on uh, Sleipnir, his eight-legged horse, knowing that uh, he's going to be eaten by Fenrir. But he, he willingly and consciously does it. And gets eaten by Fenrir, and then Odin's son Vidar. Uh, he's he's been silent his whole life because he only had one task, and that was to avenge his father's death. And he goes, and he had been making a shoe out of the leather that cobblers would throw away after they had finished a shoe, so the scraps of it. He made this incredible boot that was able to stomp on the lower jaw of Fenrir, and then he was able to plunge his sword through Fenrir's mouth into his heart. So. There's a few takeaways from this. One is when the Vikings talk about battle, they are not kidding around. Like it is epic. They're they're going for it. It you it's sort of the most awesome, you know, heavy metal album covers of all time. This is that's what basically what they're thinking of. So the the symbolism behind this is that Fenrir, he's this giant wolf and because we live, you know, in cities and suburbs and that kind of thing, we don't really have any contact with wolves. But back in the day, wolves were a big deal because they hunted in packs. They were smart. And if you were on your own out in the wilderness against a pack of wolves, you were going to be killed and eaten. And, you know, for them to come in and attack your encampment, that was incredibly common and deadly. Like it wolves were a real threat and they were 
they were one of the major environmental pressures against actually setting up settlement and basically bring order to your patch of land because one of the the greatest symbols of order is civilization and one of the greatest symbols of chaos and potential is nature and so you have this part of nature that's sort of always nipping at the heels of order in wolves and so you've got that on one side then you have odin who is literally the all-father the the one who is you know the god of wisdom and beauty and art as well as uh, death and battle and that kind of thing he is the representation of civilization and order so you have you basically have chaos devouring order you have the outside world crashing through into civilization and destroying it and for me that that is the the big point of ragnarok the, the main thrust of it is that there is always going to no matter how good things get there's always going to be an end to it and you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it and how you're going to make sure that you can survive so unfortunately that it, so that it can happen again because it's a cycle so odin dies fenrir dies uh, Sirt the fire giant uh, destroys everything, sets the world on fire, sets uh, Idrisil on fire. And then after the the waters rise and kills everything, except there are a few gods that have survived. So uh, Vidar, uh, his brother Vali, who um, who's another uh, son of Odin, uh, some uh, sons of Thor. And then there are some uh, beings named... Oh, I'm going to forget. It's like life and life razor or something like that. And they're the, the new humans. And Vidar's task is to teach them about the gods that came before them. So basically the Veluspa. Uh, as well, uh, Balder comes back from the underworld and is sort of the, the head god because he, he is the most beautiful, the most bright. He is perfect in every way. And the whole story of, of Ragnarok is basically this idea that, and it can, you can translate it to the most basic personal level of an individual who has, is facing a crisis and they're, they're no longer the same person and they, they sort of have to put their world back together. But when they do that, it, they become a stronger version of themselves. Likewise with a, a society, societies go through this all the time. Uh, a great historian to look at is Arnold Toynbee, who tracked something like 26 uh, civilizations and their, their sort of the, their rise and their decline. And it, it very much mirrors this uh, story where, you know, chaos encroaches on civilization and civilization, the first few times is usually able to battle it back, but eventually it gets swallowed up and then something new has to come out of it. So it's, it's this huge story of death and rebirth that can be used on kind of every level of existence. Wow. Yeah. And you just hit on so many great things there, Dan, that really sort of, um, you know, I have two great questions to ask you, but the whole like concept of the mythic cycle really, you, you mentioned the historian sort of echoes in that that old saying like you know history repeats itself and it certainly does and we can see that in 
and just, you know, the, the mythic cycle in Norse myth. Hey guys, before we hear more from Luke and Dan, I wanted to take a moment to share a quick word from our sponsor, Viking-Shield.com. Viking Shield is a company that offers wonderful Viking Age replicas and gifts. From swords, helmets, battle axes, and knives, to clothing, art, jewelry, and more, Viking-Shield.com is the place to be if you're a lover of Norse history and Viking culture. Their products are always stocked, so you can expect your order to arrive quickly and on time. Be sure to check them out at viking-shield.com and save 5% off your order by adding the code VIKING18 to your shopping cart. Again, that's viking-shield.com and save 5% off your order by adding the code VIKING18 to your shopping cart. So Dan, what is chaos? Because you and Luke both hit on that word chaos, and it really has great significance in Norse myth, I think, and especially Ragnarok, because, uh, you know, the, the, the universe, the, the giant tree that, that is the universe is literally set on fire. Uh, wolves, uh, jaws ripping up the ground in the sky, just this, uh, massive, undescribable apocalyptic scene. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a very, that's sort of the essence of, of utter chaos, isn't it? But, you know, you you both kind of mentioned that that chaos isn't always um, it, this good can come out of chaos. So I'd love for you to just sort of tell you know define what chaos is and and if good can come out of chaos, um, how so? For sure. So chaos is chaos is basically the unknown and the unknown in a very profound sense where. You literally don't know what's going to happen, but you're going to you're going to deal with it uh, the best you can. And there are certain uh, let's call them different flavors of chaos. So there's chaos, which is the unknown, and then I'd also classify um, like malevolence as chaos. Someone who is perf- like purposely uh, doing things to inflict or to put you in into the unknown, into chaos. Uh, so, and, and you have to deal with them in different ways. The, the unknown, the, the best way to deal with that is to go to basically uh, face it in a straightforward manner, go in knowing that you're going into the unknown, uh, which is why I actually mentioned uh, Odin facing Fenrir, even though he knew that this was probably going to be his end. Like he, he went there consciously and, and open to the the outcome, and I, I think in general that's the proper way to to live life is that you have to be open to the outcomes and be capable of ordering the chaos that that you meet so that uh, it becomes to your benefit. So the way you you deal with sort of I, I'd call it garden variety chaos, just the unknown. So you make sure that you're pretty capable in a number of ways. So, you know, you're smart, you're fit, all that kind of stuff. You're right. able to get along with people, but you're also not a pushover. And we see all of that uh, in various stories uh, involving the gods and Odin and, and 
uh, the like. And so when something new comes, you're able to deal with it and you're able to find the opportunity. And that's really the key is finding the opportunities uh, basically to make your life better or to make society better. Or you can you can bring it up the uh, sort of the, the hierarchy of things. So right. starting from the, the microcosm of the person to the macrocosm of the cosmos, right? Uh, but then with the like the bad chaos where someone's actually trying to harm you. Uh, it's in those moments where you have to take your strengths and capabilities and in some ways become a monster yourself so that you're able to fight off the, the monster that's coming for you. And again, that's also why you see Odin ride into battle because he's often thought of as, you know, the old man in the, the cloak riding his horse uh, or, or like uh, Gandalf is a great example as well. And you, you don't really think of, especially like let's, let's talk about the beginning of uh, the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf is kind of, you know, this pleasant old fellow who, you know, brings fireworks and all that kind of stuff. And it, he's, you know, wants to party and he smokes his pipe and he's, he's kind of a kindly old grandfather. But when the time comes to fight, he's able to bring out a sword and fight off the the Balrog or the the demon or the goblins or whatever's coming after him. So he, he's got that ability to become the monster. And in this, he's, it's the same with Odin where, you know, he's got, uh, he's got his eight legged steed and he's got his spear and he's, he rushes headfirst into battle because he has that ability to be, to be the monster. And if you look at, uh, the various names that Odin is known by, uh, there's a whole, it sort of covers the range of things that you should be able to do. So sometimes he's known as like the wish granter and the all father and, you know, uh, the beloved of Frigg. So like these very kind of wholesome, uplifting ideas, but he's also known as like the terrible one and, you know, the God of the hanged and the God of criminals and that kind of thing. So he's definitely has that ability to be good when good is necessary, but also if I guess evil deeds are, are needed, then he's able to do those as well. And, and that is ultimately how you deal with chaos sort of in the broad spectrum. Luke, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, you know, chaos as a concept, Dan covered that very, very well. But you mentioned the idea of potential coming out of that. And when the world returns into the water, which is what happens after Thor slays the Midgard serpent, Jormungandr, and he he kills the Midgard serpent. But since the serpent is no longer encircling the world, at least that's the way I see it anyway, the the entire world floods and gets covered with water, which is symbolically just so significant because it's it's again this pre cosmogonic chaos. Again, it's this this chaos of potential. So you have this chaos of destruction. All of this, all of these ideas of destruction coming through Ragnarok, and this is kind of how the the world will will fall. Right? Is that is that chaos will overtake the order that is being built up by civilization? But then it also has this potential afterwards and from all this destruction is going to be this rebirth and it's the same concept chaos is really the the two sides of the same coin there whereas order order is very stagnant that's what it that's what it it by nature that's what it's supposed to do order tries to make 
the the chaotic world around you be um, be less uh, scary and and less unpredictable. You want to be able to predict the world, and that's order. And the downside of order is that it it can become stagnant. It can it can stifle productivity and creativity. And then you need chaos to enter into the world. You need chaos in order for there to be any progression. You need chaos for society to continue to grow and to flourish and for it to not fall to tyranny, which really is the negative side of order. Order has just as much negative potential as chaos. It's just gone about in a completely different way. And on a very, very symbolic level, that's what... Well, we we have some glimmers of that in Norse mythology, but in stories like the sagas, then you get into more tyrannical, uh, tyrannical characters and all that. But just here in the Voluspa, it's really interesting how Odin takes his civilization to the furthest point that he can, to the point where it's kind of crumbling around him. That's what Ragnarok is really, really means. And that's why Fenris kind of taking him down is so perfect because it really just is, is the perfect symbol for his civilization crumbling to the, to the ferocious nature that's around that, that will swallow you up in an instant. Like I, I think it, it doesn't take long for abandoned places to be completely reclaimed by, by nature. Uh, I don't, I, I don't want to pull a number out of uh, out of my head or anything like that, but it's not a long time. And that's what this is. He takes, Odin takes his civilization to kind of the, the furthest point and, and then it, it has to, it has to be become new for there to be anything, uh, any, any new potential out of it. And so out of this Ragnarok, out of this massive period of destruction, it also comes the potential for rebirth and renewal. And that's what we see happening at the end. But it's not perfect. That's where the final stanza of the Voluspa is so amazing. It talks about how the dragon, Nidhogg, is still there in the world. And it's that malevolence, it's that chaos, even though they've returned to this period of a golden age everything is good. Not everything is good. They still have that chaos. And what it implies is that everything's going to go through the same thing all over again, over the course of, you know, however much time, but that chaos and that destruction, it's still there. You can't ever make anything perfect. And the, the way I interpret that is, is actually hopeful as well. It's like, there's always going to be something to struggle against. We're never going to be in the situation where life is just perfect, utopian, and and there's never anything to struggle against because you know what? That would be boring. And what they're saying is their understanding of the world is, yeah, even though things are going to, going to be renewed, we're still going to have to work to order the world. Vidar is known as the wide ruler, and he rules over the wilderness essentially which is you know the the areas of the world that civilization never touches or has never touched yet he's the ruler over that and what's great about that is he has to go order that himself now he's one of the gods that's left and so he's going to go and bring order to the wilderness and i mean that's just that's just so hopeful because there's always going to be those things to do 
the world is never going to let us just kind of have this place on our own. We're always going to have to work for it. And that's, that, you know, to me, that's, that's really cool. I like that a lot. Really well said. Uh, but I do have one question, and I'll go ahead and ask this question, and uh, either one of you can feel free to answer it, or if you both feel so inclined, um, can give your answers. But then after that, I'd love to um, move on to some more of the questions about uh, what you're up to at, at Northern Myths. But my question is this, is, you know, you talked about chaos, uh, or I should say, you talked about order having um, a potential to be negative, just as we often would say chaos is negative. But you know, I remember um, hearing a, a somebody who actually happened to teach at my old classical school, and and he said that, and this was his worldview, is he said that you know there's two different really ways of looking at life. Some people look at it as a eternal struggle of good versus evil, right? Um, in which uh, God willing, good would eventually uh, be triumphant in the end. But then others would look at at the world as sort of uh, a struggle between order versus chaos and, and people wanting to establish order uh, as opposed to chaos. So that's just a, I just thought I'd um, put that bug in everyone's ears, just an interesting little tidbit. But, you know, there's a certain gentleman who has actually written a book called An Anecdote to Chaos. So what does that mean? Does chaos need to be anecdoted? Does that, does that mean that, um, you know, there, there needs to be a, a solution to chaos or should, you know, should chaos be embraced? Sort of what is, what is uh, Jordan Peterson getting at? Well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with chaos if not try and make something out of it that you can put into order? The idea of it being an antidote to chaos the way I see it is being able to order your world in the best way that you possibly can. Without that, I mean, if you're just going to let yourself fall into chaos and let yourself really just let it do its thing, you know, you're, you're, you're giving way to depression, you're giving way to, you know, never advancing in the world. I mean, I mean, an antidote to chaos, that's just, that's just ways that you can make sense of the world around you. I don't know, Dan, do, do you have uh, any, anywhere else to go with that? That's Yeah. Uh, so I think it's the antidote to chaos because there is a, there is a proper way to interact with chaos and, and the proper way isn't to order everything so that you, you wipe it out. And I, I, I don't believe that's what the, uh, the book is promoting or what uh, Jordan Peterson's promoting. Um, I, I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not Jordan Peterson as hard, hard as I try, but uh, I think the idea is how do you, how do you interact with chaos so that you're able to, to use it to, to the benefit of yourself, your family, your community, your city, your country, and the world. And that's sort of the, that I, I think that's sort of the idea of how do you live your best life is that you want to make sure that what you're doing is good on, on all levels. And the perfect scenario isn't one where you, you've eradicated chaos. It's that idea. Oh, well, actually I'll, I'll bring Odin back into this. 
because he, I think he's a good example of how you're supposed to do this. He took out one of his eyes and put it in Mimmer's well so that he could kind of, he basically put one eye in chaos and that, so he one eye in chaos, one eye in order. And then he was able to navigate or let's say straddle the boundary between the two. And I think that's the, the proper way to look at it is that you want to be able to, to navigate both at the same time, because one, you, you always, you do actually need uh, order and territory that you know so that you can be safe because one of the I, i'd say terrible things about being human is that we do have things that we need to take care of such as uh, like sleep eating shelter all those uh, annoying things that we have to stop and do every day but the things that make it really awesome to live are are those you know bits of chaos that come into our lives and we're able to to build with and so if you can get both of those sort of in balance and together, that's how you're going to live your best life. And, and I know uh, Jordan Peterson has talked about this before, is that like we have no idea what life would be like if we were actually balanced like that. We, we don't, it, it's never happened before. It, it would like, we don't know what problems it would solve. We don't know physiologically what that would do to us. Maybe, maybe that's how, maybe that's how, you know, these as you know, I'll use air quotes and say fictional gods. Maybe that's how they became gods, that they were so good at walking that line that they were worth emulation and they were worth deifying into these examples that you would tell stories about, you know, generation after generation, because they were onto something. They they knew that they needed chaos and order together. That's really well said. And it's just a really, I think one of the central themes and um, that I've really realized in just talking with you guys today uh, in the Volispa is is chaos. So I'm really glad that we were able to, and that's really answered a lot of my personal questions that I had about uh, just how chaos is perceived in, in Norse myth. Because I really think that's a, uh, oftentimes when you read uh, literature like this, you know, great pieces of literature, and I know um, a lot of people, even in like Tolkien uh, stuff, get really into this. But oftentimes, there's uh, really large concepts behind the actual myths and really like underlying um, structures and concepts as well. As well, so I think uh, it was worth talking about um, chaos and in its relation to, especially Ragnarok, but the Volispa in general. So yeah, I really appreciate you guys for uh, taking the time to. Uh, really dive into that. But my next question to you guys, and actually my final question to you guys would be, you know, uh, the Northern Myths podcast, um, you guys do really great and fascinating work. Uh, I know I just have ordered my copy of the Kalevala so that I can uh, follow along with you guys uh, during your episodes. Um, and you've really spent a lot of time doing all of these like um just diving so deep into the the myths of Northern Europe, obviously, uh, the, like I said, the Havamal, the Volispa, the Kalevala. Um, but what's next for the Northern myths? Like, what can we all look forward to? What, where do you see the Northern Myths podcast going? What are your um, big dreams for Northern myths? Uh, what do you, you know, what I mean? Like, what what's um, what can we all look forward to, and what can we uh, expect to see in the future? 
Well, that's a that's a big question. First of all, I'll say I'll say thank you. I really, really appreciate uh, you know the the support and everything like that. And uh, it's, it's glad I'm glad that uh, you know you're following along with us. And uh, I mean that we, we've we've heard that uh, a lot actually that that people will buy the book and follow along with us, and that's really just truly humbling. So I mean, you know, thank you to everyone who's who's listened, uh, you know, who's listening to um, history of Vikings here, who's checked us out. But you know what we have to look forward to. We're, we're going to continue with the Poetic Edda. The Havamal is going to be wrapping up fairly soon. And so that's going to end one kind of mini series. That'll have been six episodes on the Havamal. And, and we're going to end that one with, uh, I think the episode we've been looking forward to most is the finale of the, the Havamal. That's going to be quite something. So uh, give it about uh, from the time this episode releases, uh, about another month or a uh, month and a half or something like that. And that episode will be coming out. We're, we're really looking forward to that. And then, of course, we're going to be continuing along with the Kalevala. That has 50 poems in it. And I'm I'm not sure if we're going to have to split them all up or if we're going to be able to do some of them in one go. I know the, the next one, part two, we're going to try to tackle that in one episode, but we've, we've had, uh, we've had times where we've, where we've tried to tackle a story in one episode where it really should have been two. And so we'll try and pace ourselves, but that's going to keep us busy for a long time. But beyond that, we are looking into, uh, into some of our next projects, which are hopefully going to be some sagas, possibly the Volsunga saga, or which I know has been covered on this show before Volsunga saga. I mean, I mean, there's, there's just absolutely tons of them. The Inglinga saga is another really, really interesting one that that comes from Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla, or I believe that's at least one source for the the Inglinga saga, and that's that's a really interesting one. But we also want to look at the Prosetta as well, which which goes into a lot more detail on a lot of the stories that are in the Poetic Edda, and it really fleshes things out. We started with the Poetic Edda because it really gives us a, a solid foundation mythologically where we can kind of springboard into all these other sources that we have available to us. And I mean, realistically, there's there's just almost infinite potential for where we can go. And and so I mean we're we're excited. We're we're in this for for the long haul, you know, and I mean it's uh it's already been uh, quite the adventure and uh we've we've learned so much and there's there's so much ahead of us, right? So it's it's really exciting. And beyond all that, we are starting to do our own interviews as well. So, I mean, starting with uh, with this with you, Noah. I mean, we're uh, we're having you on as well, which is is going to be released fairly simultaneously as this episode. But we also have uh, some other interviews lined up to just talk to people about these sorts of things. It was always something that we we planned on doing, but we we kind of. I don't want to say we we got uh, just too caught up in in kind of the whole thing at the beginning, but uh, I think we wanted to get uh, our feet under us a little bit and uh, really become comfortable with this whole podcasting thing. And uh, and now we're we're starting to reach out to people and and really uh, we're excited for the the conversations that we're we're going to have. And I mean. Uh, you know, looking to the future, we're we're really excited for everything that we're going to get to be doing. Uh, that's just, I'm so happy for you guys. And certainly I'm, you know, like I just said, uh, a massive fan of the show and I'll be there to uh, support you guys and cheer you on, uh, you know, as, as much as I can to the best of my ability. But Dan, would you like to add anything to that? 
Oh, I actually I'd just like to say that this is uh this has been absolutely uh great. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Noah, and uh I definitely would uh would like to do it again in the near future. And uh other than that, yeah, just we're gonna keep on doing stuff and as opportunities present themselves, we'll uh just as anyone should do with chaos, we'll deal with it to the best of our ability and uh who knows what'll come of it. Certainly I would love to have you guys on again. Uh you know, in the near future, that would be uh, really uh, an absolute treat for me. So, you know, where can people find you guys? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, obviously your podcast, the Northern Myths podcast uh, can be found on iTunes uh, or wherever podcasts um, roam. So where where is the best place for people to um, connect with you guys? Sure. So on Facebook, we're Northern Myths podcast and the same thing on Instagram. On Twitter, we have our common account, which is just at Northern Myths, and then we are both on Twitter personally. So I'm at I'm at North Myth Luke. Northern Myths Luke didn't fit in the whole title, and and Dan is North Myth Dan, and uh, so you can find both of us there and our YouTube channel as well. So that's just the the Northern Myths podcast on YouTube. So yeah, those are all the the places where you can find us and definitely we're always happy to connect with people. So that's awesome. Well, you know, like I said, guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's really been an honor to uh, have you guys on. This is what I crave is just these deep intellectual discussions, which unfortunately are becoming more and more rare in our society today. And certainly here in the United States of America, and especially among uh, I'm a younger guy. So like my peer group, my age group, but this was, um, really exciting. But uh, thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of the History of Vikings. Uh, you can always feel free to contact me. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. And uh, do write me a review if you would, because the more reviews that you write on iTunes and, and the like, it actually makes, um, it makes it easier for people to find the podcast. And uh, we always want to include more people in these conversations. Thank you all so much for listening to the History of Vikings podcast. Join us next week. 